All right, well, hey, everybody. Welcome again to Discovery Teachings. This is our uh, podcast format, I guess, a way for us to get out our, our teaching in a different uh, different way. Um, we continue to meet uh, online uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And, um, you know, as difficult as that is, we certainly miss our Sunday morning gatherings, those public moments of celebration and being together and building relationships in that way. Um, I have been so encouraged by how things have progressed uh, during this time, even with all the challenges that we are facing. So thank you, everybody, for being a part of that, for contributing in all the ways that you do. And, And thank you for tuning in and following along in this way. Uh, this weekend, June 14th, we got to celebrate and honor uh, David Croft and Amanda Hovanian, uh, both of whom are just wonderful, wonderful young adults who have uh, been on staff with us. Uh, Amanda for over two years, David for a year, and, and both of them have just been phenomenal contributors to our team and to the mission of helping people discover the good news of Jesus. Amanda was hired on as an undergrad to help with some administrative stuff, but she grew uh, very much into a leadership role and has been helping with youth this past year. David, our first uh, academic year-length intern, um, and he could not we, we could not have gotten a better person to be the first one uh, through the wall of that program, but then also could not have asked for a better intern for this year, which uh, has obviously not gone the way that we had planned. But David's been so flexible, willing to roll with it, and has helped us adapt to life uh, with sheltering in place, life online, all of these things. He's been a, a significant factor, too. So I want to begin a big thank you on the podcast to David Croft and Amanda Hovanian for the ways in which they have served, invested, and sacrificed uh, on behalf of Discovery for the sake of this mission. And again, two great contributors who um, we will miss in their current roles. David is still going to be around. He's actually going to be taking over for Amanda with the youth, and we're really excited about that. But obviously, things will change for them come July 1st when that transition happens. Um, And so we just want to say thank you guys for the blessing that you have been. Hey, one other thing that I want to plug here before we get into this. Uh, This summer, we're going to try an experiment. Um, You know, we've been doing a lot of different experiments, you know, with this sort of new normal. (laughs) And uh, one of them is going to be a, a thing that we're calling School of Theology. We want to be a church that thinks deeply, that thinks theologically. Um, but not just for the sake of like, oh, look at all these fancy words that we know or how many big, thick books we've read or can reference. We want to think theologically because we believe that that's sort of the fundamental thinking that we can do as human beings. Who are we in relationship to God? Who is God? How do we interact with God? And how does that impact the way that we live in the world? Our theological work is practical. It is lived. It impacts the way we live in real life. Just like we're having this conversation about David, David in real life, all that good stuff. Same thing for us. Theology in real life. It's all in service to this mission of helping people discover the good news 
of Jesus. So we're going to spend some time talking about culture and trends and uh, transitions and shifts that have happened in theology over the last 2,000 years. We're going to talk about the Bible a ton, how to interpret it, how to handle it, and how to, the, the fancy word here, guys, is exegete. Uh, to read into, to understand both our culture, the world that we live in, but also this book called the Bible, this great gift of God's word. How does that work together? That's going to be so much fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, It's going to get started about mid-July. So if you want to be a part of that, send us an email. We would love to have you join us. All right. First Samuel is where we are today, 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is the third part now in our David in real life conversation. We are focusing on the character of David here for the next several weeks and getting into his earthy spirituality. David didn't follow God in some abstract way or believe some philosophical principles about God. David had this very real relationship with the living God that had all sorts of impacts on his lived daily life and experience. So here we go. I'm just going to read a a short bit from 1 Samuel chapter 18, and then we'll look at the whole thing um, and work our way through this. So 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of David. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Transitions are messy. Leadership transitions in particular can be especially messy. I've witnessed this in in a lot of different contexts, whether it's a school that I've attended, whether it's teams that I've been a part of, and then certainly ministries that I've worked for. It is not easy to pass the baton, the leadership baton well, even under the best of circumstances. Several years ago, I was uh, um, doing college ministry in Boston. I was given responsibility of a, to lead a significant team within the larger ministry that I was serving at that time. And it went well for a little while. <laughs> but the previous that, that team's previous leader was still around a lot. And, and it felt like they were looking over my shoulder. And then it started to feel like they were meddling in what I was trying to do. And then it really started to feel kind of blatant, like they were undermining what I was trying to do. And so, you know, in, in, in trying to keep short accounts, I went and I asked about it and they, they were like, yeah, I, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm trying to undermine your leadership. And these are people, we all love Jesus. We wanted to see his kingdom come. We loved college students and, and the mission that we were a part of, but it was a struggle to pass the baton of leadership. Now imagine for a moment, transitions in toxic environments. And and maybe you don't have to use much of your imagination because you've seen this happen. But toxic environments where the leader doesn't want to leave, where they don't really care about Jesus's kingdom. And, And this is where we are at now in David's story. 
Remember back to part two, 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is uh, where David defeats Goliath. And so as we begin chapter 18, David, fresh off this incredible victory, the Philistines, Israel's old enemies now on their heels. They're on the run. David is emerging in prominence while Saul, the current king, is diminishing. And it's going to get weird and complicated and very messy and not like for you know a week or a month for years it's going to be a messy transition so we're going to look here for a moment at the ascension of david the descension if you will of saul holding these two characters in contrast let's begin with the ascension of david he defeats goliath which gets saul's attention obviously and so as chapter 18 opens again if you have your bible in front of you you can follow along uh, as, I, as I'm talking here, as 18 opens, David has also gotten the attention of Saul's son, Jonathan. Look, especially at verses 1 through 4. Now, if you remember, this is the Jonathan of 1 Samuel chapter 14, the Jonathan who took on the Philistines with his armor bearer, these two guys, uh, you know, taking on a, a, a larger number of Philistines, that whole perhaps moment that happens in 1 Samuel chapter 14. After watching David do a very similar thing in his showdown with Goliath, seeing David's faith in action. Can we be surprised that Jonathan would be a fan? No, of course he would be. These guys are kindred spirits through and through. Now we're going to talk more about their friendship in the coming weeks because it is incredible, the, the friendship between David and Jonathan. But for today, just a couple quick observations. Again, these first four verses in chapter 18. First, Jonathan loves David as himself. And, and this is powerful on so many levels, not least of which is this type of love is a reflection of God's love for us. Second, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. He binds himself to David. And then third, Jonathan gives David his robe, his tunic, his sword, his belt. Now, all of this, it is not, you know, about two tight bros sharing stuff. This is not, you know, Jonathan's just a generous guy. This is a deeply sacrificial and profound act. Jonathan is essentially giving up his right to the throne. More or less saying, you know what, David, I'm not going to get in the way. I'm not going to make this messy. Now, we don't totally know what Jonathan knows you know, it, it, how much David has confided in him, all those sorts of things. But Jonathan's actions speak pretty clearly to some level of understanding here. David, you are going to be the next king, and I'm not going to make this complicated. I'm not going to make this messy. In fact, not only am I not going to do that, I am with you. I'm on your side. Radically sacrificial posture that Jonathan takes towards David, we do not see many friendships like this today. Verse 5, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. The ascension of David, David's stock skyrocketing at this point in the story. Now, at the same time, Saul is deteriorating. <clears throat> Verse 6, through 
9. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. Those are musical instruments. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. A lot going on here. Have you ever read too much into a comment? Right? You get a text message or an email and you're kind of like, what does that mean? What are that emoji supposed to represent? And we go into all these kinds of weird places trying to interpret the message that we received. We all do this. And Saul definitely does this here, but man, does it lead him into some dark places. Now, there's an interesting thing going on with the Hebrew language and with the English translation of this. Verse 7 in most of our English Bibles uh, translate the Hebrew basically the way that Saul interprets the song. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. You dig into the Hebrew a little bit and it's much more ambiguous ambiguous than this. It can be read pretty simply. Saul has killed many. David has killed many. Out of insecurity, out of jealousy, out of whatever it may be, Saul reads more into the song than is there. Now, a couple of kind of side notes to this. One is that because David comes second, there is probably more emphasis on David. But again, it's not super clear. And, And then it does seem like they're favoring David because of the way that the English translates it, right? The the translators basically read this through the eyes of Saul. And I think they do that on purpose so that we kind of experience the, the song the way that Saul might have experienced it. But he is reading more into this than is literally there. And I wonder if this is, is related back to the Goliath story. Uh, speaking of Hebrew ambiguity for just a moment, we, we talked about this with the Hebrew language around the height of Goliath. Goliath uh, could have been anywhere from six foot six all the way up to 10 feet tall. This is 1 Samuel 17, 4. And it, again, it just kind of depends on how you, you, you translate some of the words there. But let's go for a moment. Let's go with Goliath being on the shorter end. By the way, I think that he was tall. And there's some evidence that maybe he was a descendant of the Anakites. This goes back to Genesis chapter 6, and that's a whole tangent. But there's some precedent for there being extraordinarily large human beings living in the Canaan-Palestine area at this time. Anyway, let's just go for a moment with Goliath being on the shorter end. Okay, We know that Saul also is tall. He's a head taller than most of the Israelites. We see this all the way back in his introduction, 1 Samuel 9 verse 2. Most scholars believe that this meant that Saul was somewhere in the six foot range himself. Let's just put it this way Saul is Michael Jordan, 6'6. Six, six. Goliath is LeBron, 6'8, six, 6'9. Six, <laughs> in other words, Israel had a champion who on paper matched up with Goliath. They have a tall warrior, we have a tall warrior. But Israel's tall warrior does not go out to meet Goliath in battle. Saul didn't do it. Now you can make the argument here that, well, it's not a good idea for the king to go 
But remember, David has just been anointed future king, and he goes, and he's not tall. Saul doesn't do this. Saul abdicated his responsibility, whereas, again, David goes for it. And however tall Goliath was, 6, 7, or 10, 5, it's very clear that David is much smaller than him. What we see here is uh, yet another in a long line of poor decisions that Saul makes, of faithless decisions. Again, in some ways, probably prudent that he doesn't go fight Goliath, but David, the future anointed king of Israel, does. Saul continues to make decisions from his own wisdom, from his own judgment, from things that seem to make sense on the surface of it, but reveal a lack of faith and trust in God that, that reflect little to no what we've been calling story-formed imagination, holy imagination. And now what's going to start happening is that Saul is not just making poor decisions, but is descending into some very dark places. Paranoia, assuming the worst, and a growing rage directed towards David. In verse 10, it says that a harmful or evil spirit comes on Saul from the Lord. This is the second time that we've seen this. It was mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, the nature of this evil spirit is debated, and we're going to talk more about this when we get to chapter 19. But it shows up, uh, uh, sorry, when it shows up there again. But for now, what I want to say is this. Looking at this through the perspective of the story, what the storyteller wants us to see is just the reality that Saul's in a bad place. He's afraid of David, and now he wants to kill him. And then he starts doing some bizarre things. He tries to use his daughters to manipulate David. This is verses 17 through 21. He sends David on bizarre military missions to try to get him killed. Look at verses 22 through 27. But here's the deal. It all backfires. David, in the end, becomes Saul's son-in-law, which, by the way, was supposed to happen after he killed Goliath. David does even better on the missions than what Saul asked for. And the result is this. Look at verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid. Still more afraid of David. And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. Now here's where we're going to land. Okay, Two times in the story today, verse 12 and verse 28, we're told God was with David. And then one time we're told, and this is also in verse 12, God has left Saul. So God is with David and he has left Saul. Now that is a little scary to think about. Okay, That kind of language can freak us out. And if we're not careful in how we read this and understand this, it can make it sound like God arbitrarily comes and goes in our lives on a whim. Now we need to keep this language embedded in the story. This is a story about the kingdom passing from Saul to David, about God choosing Saul and then regretting that choice and then choosing David to replace him. This is a story about a monumental transition in the life of Israel. And so we need to be cautious in translating the details of the story directly into our personal experiences. We need to be cautious in translating the details of the story 
directly into our personal experiences. Having said that, having said that, the trajectories that David and Saul are on illustrate two important principles. The first is that God does not force himself into our lives. Isaiah 40, 11, God tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Jesus himself says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven nineteen, And then Romans 2, 4, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Our gentle God, our kind God, our patient God. Saul has demonstrated a continual contempt for the riches of God's kindness. This repeated rejection of right relationship with God. When we repeatedly reject right relationship with God, it leads to dark places. David, on the other hand, is oriented towards God's heart. David is not perfect, but he is oriented towards God's heart. And God is with David, first of all, because of God's choice, but also because David is accepting. He is responsive of God's presence with him. Now, the second principle here. So first was God does not force himself into our lives. The second principle here is this. Many things go well for David because God has chosen him and is with him, but life is not all puppies and rainbows for David. David is pinned to the wall, sent on death missions. He's manipulated. He's hated. He's feared. In the not-too-distant future, he is going to be on the run for his life. And here is where we can get confused. Because all too often, we equate God's withness with the circumstances of our lives. We equate God's withness with the circumstances of our lives. Life is going well. God is clearly with me. Life is not going well. We ask the question, where did God go? God only seems to be with us when things are going well. The withness of God is not dependent on the circumstances of our lives, but on the condition, the orientation of our hearts. And this truth is so important for us right now because life is crazy. And let's have a little bit of real talk here for just a minute. For most Western Christians, we are not accustomed to lengthy seasons of suffering, to lengthy seasons of lament. And here, especially for my white brothers and sisters, I am white, I'm speaking to you. We are not used to facing seasons where injustice is so in our face where we're having to deal with this in such a head-on way. For many Christians of color, though, in our country, for many Jesus followers around the world, this moment, in terms of the uncomfortability, not so unprecedented. That being said, a very fair and honest question is, where is God in the midst of this? Has God abandoned us? In a pandemic, in civil unrest, in racial tension, has God given up on us, turned his back on us? Where is God? Now, it's in David's own words that we get some great, great insight to these big questions. 
Psalm 23 is maybe the most famous of all the Psalms. And this is where David writes, prays, and sings these words. And I'm going to read this from the New King James because I just love the language of the New King James here for this particular psalm. It's a little bit more classic. Listen as I read. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over surely. Goodness and mercy shall follow all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice how it's in the valley of the shadow of death that David knows God is with him. It's in the presence of his enemies that David sits at God's table where his cup runs over. It's in the worst possible circumstances where David knows God is with him. Our circumstances do not determine the witness of God. It's the condition, it's the orientation of your heart, which raises the very important question, where is your heart? Is it oriented towards hate and fear and prejudice and jealousy and rage? Or is it oriented towards the good and gentle shepherd? Now, here's the good news. We can invite God to change our hearts. God promises to give us a new heart and put a new spirit in us. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And here's the really good news. That is not all on us. The good shepherd will do his gentle work, bringing transformation and healing, restoring our soul and right relationship. This is not something we work ourselves into. It's work that the good shepherd does in us. Long after the time of David... Many, many years after the kingdom of Israel has completely fallen apart, the people of Israel are conquered. They are hauled off to Babylon. They're living in this oppressive world power. In the midst of this, God says to his people, you've probably heard these words before. This is Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, I know the plans I have for you. Okay, you're in exile. You're living under an oppressive regime. I'm going to prosper you and not harm you. I have plans to give you hope and a future. Now, these words are often used in inspirational settings like, oh, you just graduated, uh, big life milestone, whatever. God knows the plans that he has for you, plans to prosper, not to harm you. Uh, we usually give those words to people in the best possible circumstances. They come to Israel in the worst possible situation for them short of death. They are in captivity. They are away from their land. Their temple has been destroyed. Everything is lost. Their whole way of life disrupted. Everything turned upside down. Now, our current situation, and I want to be careful about what I say here because there are those of us who have gotten COVID-19. There are those of us who have family and loved ones who have uh, passed away from COVID-19. So there is 
uh, great suffering. We've lost jobs. We've lost income. All, all kinds of things have happened, but we're not necessarily physically in an empire or in a exile moment. But I do believe we are in a form of exile. So I want to be careful about about drawing too sharp of an analogy, and yet at the same time, I don't want us to miss this. We are in a form of exile, and this is where we need to hear the rest of what God says to His people. Yes, I'm going to prosper you and not harm you. I have plans to give you hope and a future. But it's in exile, darkness, hopelessness, fear, abandonment, shelter in place, COVID-19, pandemic, civil unrest, racial riots. God says, you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you in to exile. God says, if you seek me, you will find me. And so the question is not, where is God? The question is, what are you seeking? What is the condition of your heart? In our gatherings, whether they are physical, Sunday morning, in the theater gatherings, or digital worship gatherings, we have this moment of communion because we want to remember. We want to remember what God has done for us through his son Jesus. This truth that he went looking for us and he found us. This gentle invitation that Jesus extends to us to come home, to be transformed, and to receive a new heart. So my question today is, again, what are you seeking? What is your heart oriented towards? Where do you need to invite the good and gentle shepherd to do some work on your heart? Grace and peace, my friends.